Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing John and Sherlock from BBC's Sherlock. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Oh my god, we're back again. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry folks, we are in a Backstreet Boys state of mind today. Yes, we have been singing leading in and we're just a little concerned it's going to keep coming up. So we're just going to go with it. Prepare for that. So we are, we're back again and we're talking about John Locke or John Watson and Sherlock Holmes from the BBC version of Sherlock, though they do exist in basically all other versions of Sherlock Holmes media. You and I have both seen all of BBC's Sherlock. Though you have seen it more recently than I, so if there are details to be remembered, that's going to be on you, buddy. Yes, so I had originally only watched the first two seasons of Sherlock, uh, but when we decided to do this one for the pod, I was like, I guess I gotta watch those second two seasons. And I did it. Mm-hmm. So we're you ready did. to go. So I guess, uh, as we usually do, we should say, like, generally, how do you feel about, in this case, both Sherlock the show and Sherlock the concept? So it's interesting because, again, thinking about this in preparation, I realized I don't think I've ever seen, like, a classic, traditional, straight adaptation of a Sherlock Holmes story, nor, mm. have, nor have I read the books. Yeah, I haven't read them either. That does bring to my mind the question of if I've ever seen a straight adaptation. I've Because I've seen, you know, like I've seen a lot of Elementary on CBS. I've seen Mm -hmm. maybe only the first of the Robert Downey Jr. movies. I can never remember. I've seen both of those. And I've seen obviously a bunch of stuff that references Sherlock Holmes heavily. You can't get away from it. So I think the closest, and I guess this is probably technically a pretty straight adaptation, are I think they did two Wishbone episodes of Sherlock Ooh. Holmes stories, and I saw both of those as yeah. a child. So that's probably the most, like, traditional <laughs> Yeah, like, one-to-one one adaptation of the yeah. story. So I think what that ends up meaning, though, is neither of us are probably particularly precious about the character of Sherlock Holmes. This is the type of thing, like, we've talked before about the types of media where people are very precious about the adaptation. Or maybe there's no adaptation at all. Like if you're thinking about Star Wars and the only version of it that's ever existed is these films and people have this idea about exactly what they are. This, I think, is the flip side of that coin where it's been adapted hundreds of times into every kind of media you can imagine. If there are Sherlock like purists out there, I don't really know (laughs) who they are and what their idea is about this because it's just been done so many times. It's basically like a fable or something at this point like everyone has done their version of it yeah and I've never watched an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes and been like this isn't true to the character exactly because who is the character at this point it's a guy I guess if I watched an adaptation quote-unquote of Sherlock Holmes and he didn't solve any crimes and was like (laughs) a taxi driver who just you know like I'd be like this is weird why yeah you'd be like why are we calling him Sherlock Holmes I'm not really understanding But I don't know, I wouldn't be upset about it. I'd just be like, interesting choices. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, that's, I think, where we are in terms of our opinions about Sherlock Holmes. Were you a fan of BBC's particular adaptation? I was for a while. The first couple seasons I was into, up up to the third season, I think, I was still enjoying it. Fourth season got fully kind of off the rails for me. Um, And then I think really what ended up happening with Sherlock is the stuff outside of the show ended up taking over the conversation about the show (laughs) and so I just sort of plus there's the fact that it's it's BBC and it takes years for the seasons to come out it just sort of like fell off of my radar I think how about you so I was trying to figure out actually why I had initially stopped watching after the first two seasons um which it could have just been incidental like I just stopped watching. But I realized what happened was season two aired at the beginning of 2012. Season three aired in 2014. And in Mm -hmm. between, Star Trek Into Darkness came out, as did the Hobbit adaptation. And you got mad at Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. And Martin Freeman. And I was like, I don't need to look at these actors anymore. Maybe ever again. (laughs) So I 
watching the show anymore. Well, that's why actors need to be careful about their choices, you know? Yes, they'll, they'll lose a viewer. So <laughs> This is it. You've lost a viewer. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I'll be honest, now going back and watching the second half, I don't feel like if I'd never seen it, it would have been like a great it tragedy. It wouldn't have changed your life, no. But you wouldn't have been able to do this episode of our that's podcast. True. So that's where we are. So let's start with our usual, why are people shipping these characters? Why are we talking about them? And we'll start with just a little bit of the canon evidence, as right. it were. So right out of the gate. Episode one. People are constantly asking if they are a couple. So the show puts this idea front and center in a lot of yes. ways. Uh, when John initially goes to look at Sherlock's apartment, Mrs. Hudson is like, oh, will you be needing, uh, we have an upstairs bedroom as well. I don't know if you'll be needing it. Right. And then in the same episode, a- after they solve the case, I think it's, I think it's mid-case. Mid-case. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherlock takes John to a favorite restaurant of his where he's, a pal of the owner and the owner assumes that the two of them are there on a date and it's this whole running thing of John having to constantly say like we're not on a date and then while they're on this not date uh John ends up asking Sherlock if he has a girlfriend and Sherlock says he's not really into that and then he asks if he has a boyfriend and very clearly is like which is fine and Sherlock's like I know it's fine but I'm I'm married to my work (laughs) is how he leaves it gives different answers to those two questions yeah not into women doesn't have a boyfriend because he's married to his work so those are very early on but just throughout the show people are constantly i guess mistaking them for a couple or uh thinking they're a couple and it's always quote-unquote no homoed away Mm -hmm. by um i would say even john in particular Oh, and even when they're not being accused of being a couple, when they're just alone in a scene together and they do something like that challenges John's heterosexuality in some way, like there's a scene where they're running away from danger or something and they grab each other's hands to run. And John is like, I hope no one sees this or they'll think we're gay. And you're like, okay, who, yeah. who is that for, John? Who are you talking to? And then in the scene when, um, the scene at the pool when Moriarty has captured John and Sherlock ends up saving him as Sherlock is trying to, you know, take off his, he's like strapped with a bomb or something. Mm -hmm. He's taking it off. And John, again, for no one, because they're the only ones there, says, good thing no one's seeing this. You taking my clothes off in a darkened pool. And you're just sort of like, what's your deal, John? (laughs) Why are you so preoccupied with this? It's just, it's really excessive. And like, I guess clearly meant to be played for humor but there gets to be a certain point where it's like is it that funny to say we're not gay is that a joke even what what are you trying to do here and why does it keep happening over and over mark gatiss will speak to that a little bit in a quote we talk about later but i still think it's a bit much I agree. Another piece of evidence we have, right, is the scene with Irene Adler when John and Irene are talking about Sherlock and she, I think, I guess she says, oh, you're in love with him? And he's like, I'm not Yeah, she calls them boyfriends or something. Yeah. And he says, I'm not gay. And she says, I am. And look at us both. Yeah. As in, like, you and me, both people who are generally attracted to women, yet here we are in love with Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Now, the other thing that the show does that's really interesting to me, and I guess we'll probably talk about this more, is season three and four are, are, I think, really different from season one and two. And we've talked in previous episodes about how one of the functions of fan fiction is to shift a story away from just being plot-based to being very Mm character-driven. And in a lot of ways, season three and four do that (laughs) to season one and two. Yeah, kind of, compared to season one and two. Season one and two are, I I mean, I don't know enough about the Sherlock Holmes canon to know like how closely they're sticking to the stories but it feels like seasons one and two are each episode is very much like one of the mysteries and the episode is all about adapting the the story to the show and there's like little bits of character here and there but they're plot driven it's a detective show you know and then when you get to season three what happens it just becomes all about Sherlock and John and their relationship and their John's feelings about 
you know, Sherlock faking his death in the first uh, episode in season three. Sherlock's feelings about John having a fiance, then wife. Right. The whole second episode, the wedding episode, is barely about a mystery. I mean, yeah, they talk about, he weaves in mysteries to it, but the plot of the episode is not the mysteries. The plot of the episode is John's getting married and Sherlock is upset about it, basically. (laughs) And I think kind of furthering that is in season three and four, almost all of the mysteries are somehow directly tied to Sherlock or John or Mary or someone in their life. They're not just, there was a crime in town and we have to go out and solve this crime. It's a, it's a really interesting shift yeah noticeable we'll get into probably more details going forward but that's probably enough to lay the groundwork for why this is the shit people talk about so there's clearly a good amount in the the canon of the show not only does it exist it's directly commented upon frequently through the no homoing of constant no homoing very much a, a lady doth protest too much sort of situation but i guess outside of the show right uh, what are the creators saying how are they justifying all of this hand-holding uh, that they're putting well, in the show? i would say they're not justifying the hand-holding at all they are actively telling you the hand-holding is meaningless <laughs> why are you asking us about the hand-holding So we'll start, I guess, with the actors, as we like to do. We'll start with Martin Freeman. I think before I tell you what Martin Freeman has said, so that we can give him the fairest of shakes possible, Mm -hmm. we should mention that his the actress that plays his wife later in the show in season three, Mary, and in season four, uh, is played by his real life wife from the time. I think they're divorced now. And... Due to circumstances outside of the show that we will be talking about in greater depth later, there was some vitriol (laughs) pointed at this actress by a lot of fans. And to the point where she was like getting death threats in the way that, you know, happens to female actresses because people on the internet are not fucking cool. Uh, (laughs) So there was this air of tension, I think around those seasons of the show his experience with the show and particularly his experience with fans we'll call them fans even though that sort of aggression really has no place in fandom mm-hmm. um but the yeah his he i think he was soured a bit on the experience with the fans and so has said some less than friendly things about the john Locke shippers out there so i will start with this quote from the telegraph which kind of tickles me actually <laughs> uh he says Quote, there was a chunk of people who just knew it was going to end with us getting together, us being John and Sherlock. Me and Ben, we have literally never, never played a moment like lovers. We ain't fucking lovers. (laughs) He really wants it to be clear for folks who might be confused out there. Yes. And then also there was a point, this must have been between seasons three and four, maybe even around season four time. Um, he talks about how the experience of doing the show has become, quote, not fun anymore, <laughs> saying if you're in something that has a lot of fans, that's better than being in something that has no fans. My point with Sherlock was that those expectations can be heavy. Yeah. So he uh, struggled, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. When the relationship between the fans and the creators gets adversarial, kind of aggressive, threatening, violent, uh, that could be tough to deal with. That said, he was not diplomatic <laughs> about uh, people who are shipping yes. John Locke. So where does Benedict Cumberbatch come out? Benedict Cumberbatch had, a, I guess, a bit of a different perspective, although, again, uh, to our knowledge, he did not have anyone close to him receiving death threats, so yeah. a little different experience. He said uh, about, uh, I guess, the fans specifically, It's the responsibility of the storytellers to manage that, really. And I think, you know, it's pretty weak to blame that on fans. You're either along for the ride or not. And I think to be kowtowing would, in some cases, disappoint fans. So I don't think it can all rest on that. I think there are more people responsible than the people receiving what you're working on. Yeah, I think this was in response to one of those Martin quotes that people perceive to be, you know, anti-fan about the fans anti-fan and benedict was like well let's not be anti-fan though again 
not in the same situation as Martin emotionally. So at first you're sort of like, well, maybe Benedict is very like chill about the John Locke shippers and the fandom in general, kind of a live and let live sort of man. But then (laughs) we stumbled upon uh, some interesting opinions he had about uh, fandom and fan fiction in general. I like even how the intro to this quote is written, so I'm going to, to read that. Cumberbatch is referring to the rapacious slash fiction community that has turned his chilly, acerbic, and question mark distinctly asexual, we'll get back to that, uh, <laughs> Sherlock into a lustful cock monster. Yeah, I think the, the uh, interviewer here has their own opinion <laughs> about fandom yeah. that they have potentially uh, led benedict into commenting on as well but what did benedict have to say about that but what he says is it's always like one of them is tired one comes back from work the other is horny a lump appears in his trousers and then they're at it it's usually me getting it i'm biting watson's dog tags then the interviewer says like perhaps making Holmes and watson gay is a way to remove other women from the picture and benedict cumberbatch says yes yes I think it's about burgeoning sexuality in adolescence because you don't necessarily know how to operate that. And I think it's a way of neutralizing the threat. So this person is sort of removed from them as somebody who could break their heart. So there's a lot going on here with this quote. Uh, I would like to address many parts of it. I would like to address the interviewer who has laid this label onto Sherlock of being distinctly asexual, which we'll get more into later because I don't think the creators would agree with him there. Um, and then we've got Benedict who, bless him, (laughs) clearly does not have a lot of experience with fan fiction and has, what, interestingly, it's not in this quote, but we did find other quotes where clearly someone has showed him a particular fan fiction that involves John and Sherlock, like, in space or something. And he keeps talking about it. He brings it up in every (laughs) interview (laughs) where someone mentions fan fiction to him. It scarred him for life. But he... As I just wish people who didn't really know anything about a community of people would refrain from talking about it instead of laying out a bunch of ill-formed opinions because they get into a lot of assumptions here. They're assuming that all of the people writing these fan fictions are like seemingly teenage girls, mm-hmm. right? That seems to be the implication who are like in love with the men that they're writing about and therefore this is the implication, make them gay so that there is not the threat of another woman get it gaining their affection right that seems to be what they're saying somehow that would make them less attainable more attainable if they're gay they're more attainable than if they have a girlfriend i I guess it's kind of like a if i can't have them then no one should (laughs) sort of situation okay i don't know they're saying a lot that's somewhat offensive really what offends me more is this like low level homophobia going through the whole thing. Him talking about how his character's getting it and biting Watson's dog tags. You're just sort of like, why are you talking like this? So I think the conclusion we drew from where the actors stand is Martin's pretty angry and Benedict's out of touch. Yes, kind of out of touch. He does he does seem to speak from a position of like when he talks about the fandom, it's like he doesn't interact with them a lot, seemingly. He mm-hmm. seems like someone who maybe like doesn't really have social media, doesn't have to hear a lot from fans other than maybe at conventions. And therefore, unlike Martin, is able to speak from a position of like, who cares? But then also, I have weird opinions about fan fiction and I'd like to share them. (laughs) So our actors, not doing too much, really. Where we really get into the interaction or potential conflict between the fans and creators are our creators, our writers, our showrunners. And our creators have a lot to say about this ship in particular. Oh boy, they do. So Moffat and Gaddis. Yeah, or Moftis, as people sometimes call them. (laughs) Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis. I think it's Gaddis? I'm not sure. Could be Gaddis. I don't know. The, the two of them are the writers and have been asked many, 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 many times. This is not a situation where they don't have a lot to say about it because they get confronted with John Locke questions all the time. So uh, let's start with Stephen Moffat, who in an interview with The Guardian in 2012, so this would be back in season two times, pre-season three, when things get really John Locke heavy in the canon, says that he wanted to keep Sherlock's celibacy as it was in the source material. as 
both of us have never read the source material. <laughs> I guess that's a part of it, that Sherlock is celibate. Uh, sure. Explaining that there's no indication in Conan Doyle's stories that he was, quote, asexual or gay, and even said he, quote, declines the attention of women because he doesn't want the distraction. Moffat went on to explain that Sherlock wouldn't live with a man if he, quote, thought men were interesting, and it was, quote, the choice of a monk, not the choice of an asexual. So I kind of feel like almost any time creators get into mentioning asexuality, they're doing it in a less than good way. <laughs> so, With the exception, right, of Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil who... Gaiman stands alone at this point. So what's Moffat doing here? He's saying a lot of things. He's saying Sherlock is celibate. That's a fact from the Conan Doyle stories. So we need to come up with our reason for why that is. And he wants you to know it's not that he's asexual. He's celibate by choice. And he chooses to be celibate because, uh, you know, having some sort of human sexual interaction would be a distraction from the purity of his detective work. And sure. then further goes on to say that the fact that he invites John to come live with him is like proof of this. Because if he were proof that he's not gay, at least. Because mm -hmm. if he were, inviting a man to come live with him would be way too much distraction. <laughs> so he would never do that. So again, this is the quote, choice of a monk, not the choice of an asexual. Though, I, again, not sure where that comes into it at all, because an asexual could choose to live with a man or a woman, right? Like, what would that have to do with anything? I don't really understand. I guess he's just getting at, it's he's definitely celibate. Not asexual. A lot going on there, but um, yeah, <laughs> we will we will leave it at that for Moffat, I guess. Although he also he does the same thing as Gatiss, which you'll see later, where they very people say, "Are John Locke getting together?" and they are unequivocal in stating, "No, they're not. They're never getting together. It's not going to happen. Stop asking us." Is the vibe right. of all of their interviews. So let's go on to Mark. In this is in 2014. So this is either like right before or at the time of um, season three happening. So someone asks him at a Comic-Con, did you at any point have to resist the temptation of Sherlock and Watson being gay? What a fun little question. And he says, well, in response to that, uh, he was like, it wasn't a temptation. But we jump ahead in uh, his quote here. And he says, this is where we're going to get to something we talked about earlier. The whole idea of John and Sherlock being mistaken for a couple in our show is inspired by the Billy Wilder film, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which we love to distraction. The we here being him and uh, Moffat. Yes, and we have never seen it, Maddie and I. Right, we are not the ones that love it to distraction. <laughs> Stephen and Mark are the ones. And in that, Sherlock gets out of an awkward situation by claiming that he and Watson are a couple, so we sort of run with the same joke. But it's a joke. That's obviously not to belittle the idea that they could be, but in our version, they are not. And Sherlock specifically says in episode one, when John asks him if he has a girlfriend or a boyfriend, he says, no, all that matters to me is brain work. Everything else is just transport. His body is an appendage to him. Now I'll stop there and say all that last part he didn't say, actually. <laughs> in Correct. The episode. As we, as we discussed, that's not what he said. Not what he said. What he said was not interested in women, don't have a boyfriend because I'm married to my work. <laughs> yes. But also, right, this goes back to the no homo of it all of like, is it a, it's not a funny joke. Right. So he's saying here, the fact that we constantly have people mistake them for a couple and have them comment on the fact that they're not a couple is meant to be a running joke as a reference to this Billy Wilder film, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Now, I can take him at his word there, I suppose, but I I quibble with the argument that it's a funny running joke. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem very funny to me. Even in the first episode, it's not that funny. But then once you've done it over and over again, it's sort of like, what's the joke? Why does this, why does this keep happening? It's weird. It's weird. The, the, the amount at which it happens is weird. Why do they keep talking about it? Who is it a joke for? When you boil it down, what's the joke? The joke is the idea that these two men could be in a relationship? Why is that a joke? <laughs> I don't understand it at all. Now, we shouldn't lay uh, too much like homophobic intention on Mark Gatiss since he is a gay man. But that said, I don't know about that as a running joke and I don't really understand it. I would think 
a reference to that movie one time might be funny. Again, we haven't seen the movie, so I don't know what the awkward situation is that they get out of. But I suppose you could write into your episode a clear reference where it's a similar awkward situation. Now, again, we can't speak to it because we haven't seen it, though. What we'll get into later, people who are John Locke conspiracists <laughs> uh, use actually this film and the fact that these guys are a fan of it as evidence that the two of them are together. Because I guess there's like an idea that the movie has serious queer subtext, not just like a joke one time about <laughs> how they might have been together. So I obviously, I don't know how much uh, weight to give that, but there there is another side where I think some people who are fans of that movie see it differently than Gatiss does. Sure. So then we'll get to the next part of this quote from him is, if we had an agenda of making Sherlock and Dr. Watson an openly gay couple, love that he calls it an agenda, that's what we would have done. But that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. I'm very happy everybody thinks what they like, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> and in this this um, write-up of the quote, because it's from Comic-Con, they write in that the crowd complains <laughs> when he says this. And he goes on, no, I'm not joking. It's not. The point of the series is not to make them an openly gay couple. And as I said, the danger is people say, but why? They should be because we need more openly gay couples in television. Yes, we do. But this is our show. And we're just making a decision about our characters. I'd be very happy to write another show in which there's an openly gay couple. And that's what it's about. But it's not this one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So again, right, there's a couple a couple of problems here one like that's the that's the crux of the problem with representation everyone is someone's show so whose responsibility is it to create representation sort of everyone's yeah right? you would think so i don't know if i particularly like that as an answer um but i think we've talked about this in other instances right there's a there's a line you can walk either way of like you can have a gay couple right and the show doesn't have to be about that yeah that's uh, one of my main quibbles with his quote here is him saying i'd be happy to write another show where there's an openly gay couple and that's what it's about that to me raises some alarm bells because i think there's an idea even apparently among gay television writers (laughs) that when you make your characters gay that's what the show is about and i don't know that that needs to be the case really but it's also odd, right? Because again, if this is right around the premiere of season three, there is a distinct shift to the show being about John and Sherlock's personal lives mm-hmm. and their relationships. So at the same time, it's like, what are they trying to accomplish with that shift in focus? Yeah, because the show, if, if your show stayed straight procedural the whole way through, right? Yes. I, again, I would argue that like, that doesn't have any bearing on whether or not your characters are straight or gay. <laughs> and, sure. But but at least you could say, like, everyone needs to stop focusing so much on the sexual identities and personal lives of these characters. They're meaningless and have nothing to do with the show. The show is about the cases. Yes. But that's not at all the case with late seasons of this show. The show is not about the cases. The show is about the characters and their development and what's going on with them emotionally. And so you're making a show about character development and explicitly choosing not to make them queer, even though you're constantly having them comment on the fact that people think that they're gay. So it's like, what are all of these things doing together, right? Like all of the different pieces of the writing are coming together in this interesting way that doesn't necessarily seem to mesh with the way that the writers talk about the show. Right. You asked me as we were outlining, like, what is the arc of Sherlock? What are they trying to accomplish with the show? And I was like, I don't, really no I don't know that anything like comes together in a way where I'm like I get what they were attempting to do and the overarching story they were attempting to tell which again if it's a procedural it's not a question I have I don't usually watch procedurals and say you know like what's the what's the emotional arc for these characters right and so yeah if it just stuck to being a procedural you'd be like fine but the the shift to it being about John and Sherlock and so much emphasis on whether they're gay or not is weird if if you as the writer are like this isn't what the show is about this yeah. isn't what we're doing but don't write in everyone thinking they're gay and it just being about their relationship and 
exactly make the show like, a procedural. you can't on the one side write a show with so much explicit queer subtext that feels like it's there for a reason because you're both commenting on it out loud in the show right over and over you're having them mention the idea that they might be gay that people think they're gay that they're sick proclaiming that they're not gay but acting in a way that makes people think they are anyway even the irene adler thing where she basically is like yeah we're both into women but we're obviously in love with sherlock like that's the text of the show not even the subtext of the show so you're writing that and then you're also in all of your interviews that people ask you about so like what's going on with john and sherlock you're like why do people keep asking me that they're not going to be gay they're not gay we're not writing that that's not the show we're writing this is our show and it's about straight guys (laughs) (laughs) so that's its own weirdness so yeah they're kind of dicks from these quotes from the way that they interact with their fans they're very dismissive but in addition to being assholes towards the fans they're also known liars (laughs) and admitted about themselves so Stephen Gaddis, or Stephen Gaddis. This is what happens when you call yourselves Moftis. I'm going to start to just. Are, are you going to? Are you referring to one of them, or do you want to just call them Moftis? I no, I'm referring to Stephen Moffat because I was going to say he also um, is a Doctor Who writer, and over in that mm-hmm. fandom is also known for doing this thing where they like explicitly try to mislead fans about what's going to happen on the show. And they're known for saying one thing's going to happen and then it's not what happens or saying one thing's not going to happen and then it is what happens. They, instead of what would be my strategy, I think if I were running a show of just not answering questions <laughs> about the yeah. upcoming plot, they seem to take great pleasure in uh, misleading people. So as an example of that, in 2012, after the second season, which ends with uh, seemingly Sherlock dying, obviously there are two more seasons, so he's not actually dead, spoiler alert. Right, and we do see at the end of the second season episode that he's still alive. So we know we know from within the show that he faked his death, right. but so how did he do then it? Then Moffat claimed in 2012, there's a clue everybody's missed. So many people theorizing about Sherlock's death online, and they missed it. We've worked out how Sherlock survives and actually shot part of what really happened. It all makes sense. Now tell me, Kelsey, when they come back for season three, how did he do it? don't know they literally don't don't tell (laughs) there are several explanations given and we'll talk a little bit more about season three episode one uh later as well but yeah nothing definitive is said and clearly they didn't figure it out no or they did and decided it wasn't important to tell the story hard to say but he's taking great pleasure here in saying like we are so clever no one can guess what we're writing the show is impenetrable because we're just such amazing writers (laughs) and nobody's caught the clue we put in and then um in 2016 right before the fourth season airs mark gatiss says We've expl- again, we've explicitly said this is not going to happen. There's no game plan, no matter how much we lie about other things, that this show is going to culminate in Martin and Benedict going off into the sunset together. We're not trying to fuck with people's heads, not trying to insult anybody or make any kind of issue about it. There's nothing there. And it's, if you admit you're a liar, why would I believe you? Again, when in the show, you've written <laughs> so much evidence that they could be a couple yes so okay this is the backdrop against which all of this is happening right the fans are becoming more and more convinced that john locke is at the very least being hinted at by the writers right the, the writers are becoming more and more adamant that it's not we're not implying that it's we never meant for it to happen so in this you know stew this this stew of things happening emerge a couple of different reactions among the fandom and just like i guess like media critics in general people who have opinions about the show there was a growing group of people claiming that the show was queer baiting and at this point like pretty aggressively queer baiting because of all of the intense references in the show to them being queer but not queer and then as you get specifically into season three how much the show is about the their relationship and like the implication of them being in a relationship or at least having feelings for each other. So there's like growing calls for the show to address their queer baiting issues. And another example yeah. of the queer baiting that's going on in the show, and we couldn't really figure out where to slot this in 
elsewhere in the episode is Moriarty. Yes. The lovely Andrew Scott, who really puts in like a performance. <laughs> and so obviously not as much of a focus, mm-hmm. but he is a clearly queer coded character. Yes. So that's its own issue of queer coded villains and, and that whole history. But right. I was saying to Kelsey when we were outlining, like, if somehow this show existed, but John was just gone. So it's a show about, like, Sherlock, the lone detective who has no friends and lives by himself. And, like, the only other character is his brother or something. (laughs) And Moriarty was exactly the same. And everything that happens with Moriarty and Sherlock stays the same. I think this would be a conversation about the Moriarty-Sherlock queerbaiting, right? Because there are the sort of, there's chemistry, there's implications, there's the same sort of, if not as you know many of them the same sort of references to like an attraction between the two of them so even more going on even more going on so we've got that we've got a whole segment of the fandom increasingly saying like can you guys stop writing the show like this if you have no intention of having the two of them get together because it's getting a little offensive at this point and then we have what is one of the more interesting fandom uh events (laughs) in recent years we have a segment of the of the fandom that decides like we love this show these writers are great we think that they are good writers we trust them with these characters and and they're telling us all of these things in the show about the characters and their feelings for each other and they keep referencing the fact that they're like maybe queer but not queer so something's going on here and if that something is not queer baiting and i don't want it to be queer baiting because right and the writers are known liar to yeah telling me it's not happening but they're liars so they decide it, they're lying about lying not lying i guess and they do intend for the two of them to get together in the end of the show so out of this again out of this soup develops something called the john Locke conspiracy and it i think it emerges right after the second episode of season three which is the wedding episode which is when you watch it, it's kind of striking how much that episode is all of a sudden about their feelings for each other. Particularly, like, even if you don't think that the episode is implying that they're in love with each other, I feel like the episode is at least implying that Sherlock is in love with John. <laughs> like, the entire plot of it is John's getting married, Sherlock is devastated. And so you're like, what's the subtext of that, right? <laughs> it feels yeah. pretty clear. <laughs> Maybe it is that, like, he's sad that he's losing his platonic friend, but I, that feels like a little bit more of a leap than what you would assume from this situation because if you were getting married i wouldn't act like sherlock (laughs) i hate to tell you it's okay okay. (laughs) so yeah so the 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 john la conspiracy i will give you the definition from fan lore just so you can get like the vibe of what this is the john la conspiracy is a fan theory which asserts that the writers of bbc sherlock intend to make john sherlock the canon endgame pairing the theory is often presented as a rebuttal to the allegations of queerbaiting commonly lodged against the show by other fans and in the mainstream media. So what are the effects of this? So, right, the unfortunate effects is it ends up being pretty divisive within the fandom. Yes. Of course, the John Locke conspiracy folks are convinced that John Locke is endgame. Yes. And it sort of starts like a fan civil war around what's happening with the show and what are the writer's intent? And, you know, are you a real fan? Or Yeah, who gets to call themselves a real fan of the show? They start to uh, call people who ship John Locke but don't believe in the conspiracy antis. There's like all sorts of othering language going on. And it becomes a thing where it's hard for people to exist in these fandom spaces together in ways that don't lead to conflict. (laughs) So I think there's kind of like a schism in the fandom at this period. And a lot of people who are turned off by it end up kind of driven out of at least the online fandom spaces. And then it also unfortunately contributes to what we were talking about earlier, the sort of like threats of violence against the poor actress who plays Mary and that getting it like exacerbates the tensions that are already there between the creators and the fans. And I think one of the more interesting components of the John Locke conspiracy is what happens after the season finale. Yeah, this ends. gets fascinating. And, so, and John and Sherlock are not in game. Yeah. So the show, this, the, the conspiracy comes about in season three when things all of a sudden are about John and Sherlock and the wedding happens and all of that. So the fans of this decide like, 
in season four, since it's supposed to be the final season, that's when it's going to happen. We're going to be end game. They have to make the reveal that the two of them are together in season four. Otherwise, like, when are they going to do it? Oh, and and the thing is, too, right? I forget which episode it's in. It's the one where Sherlock has gotten arrested for, for killing that Danish or Dutch guy. Yeah. They're at the airport together. So he's about to be flown off. And he, he does that thing where he's like, there's something I have yes, to tell you. Yeah, John. something I've always meant to tell you, John. And John's like, what? And there's this pause. And then Sherlock's like, Sherlock's actually a girl's name. And you're like, ha, 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 yeah. ha, ha. <laughs> So, yeah, they're convinced it's going to happen in season four. Season four airs. It's its own kind of controversial. Like people were already kind of let down by the end of season three, and then season four happens, and it's very much like wacky. wacky. So, needless to say, they don't get together by the end of season four. And so, the fans, since this is a conspiracy, right? We're like, people really believe this. There's a lot of intensity around the belief. So, when they haven't gotten together by the end of season four, the true believers, I imagine some people were like, oh, bummer. And then they stopped sure. writing about it. But then there were, and I, I think it's probably worth saying, right? Like the conflict that we're talking about is not everyone who was in the John. No, 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 no. Not everyone. Definitely not. Just in case that's not clear from our description of no, what's happening. Absolutely not. There are plenty. And well, and, and obviously, it's like anything. There's a spectrum. Like there were real true believers in this who could not be dissuaded. But then there, I'm sure there were people that were like, oh, that's a super fun idea. I love it. I'm interested yeah. in that, which honestly is kind of me. Like, I think if, if this had been real, I would have been truly delighted. And then there's people who are like, you know, haha, that's funny. I guess I'll follow along with that. There's a whole spectrum of people. So the people who are convinced to the point where it, it like had, it's, you know, it has to be true. <laughs> when the show mm-hmm. ends and they're out together, there was another series that was supposed to start airing on the BBC the week after called Apple Tree Yard, I think. (laughs) If I'm wrong, I apologize. And they developed this new theory that that show was actually not real. And it was like a cover by the BBC. And what was actually going to air the premiere night of Apple Tree Yard was the secret fourth episode of season four of Sherlock, where they were actually going to get together. Needless to say, again, that week happens. Apple Tree Yard airs. There's no secret episode. People are doubly bummed. <laughs> so yeah, but now they're kind of talking about a season five. So keep hope alive, John Locke. Right, and I think some people did continue to hang on to hope. So I, I guess we'll see what happens. Again, from the way Moftis have spoken about it, unless they've changed their tune, maybe they've had time to. Maybe they've changed their mind at this point. Yeah. But if they're, you know, kind of in the same space as they uh, seem to have been throughout the original run of Sherlock. I I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, it's not looking likely, I hate to say. So yeah, this leads us to kind of the whole point we wanted to do this episode, if I'm being honest. <laughs> oh, before we get to that, I do want to say, right, so this also kind of harkens back to a couple of the theories of fan fiction that we've yeah. talked about throughout the podcast. So I mentioned earlier on, like, it's kind of interesting that season three and four themselves are the shift to a character focus, which is sort of overarchingly seems to be what a lot of fan fiction is doing. Mm -hmm. But also you have the elements of, like, fan fiction and fan production as a way of community building. And this is a strong community that these folks have built, yeah. People really got into their communities about what was happening with the show, sub-communities, and that clearly was a component. But also... I think what we really talked about is it with the Harry Potter episode of like this universe theory where people are watching something and they love it. Mm -hmm. And then it starts not quite holding together. Parts of it starts to contradict itself. And there is an urge to, to take parts of canon that don't make sense and make them make sense. And to me, that's what a lot of the John Locke conspiracy is, is to look for these clues that are in the episode and say, it has to be culminating to something worthwhile. It has to be culminating to something making sense. Something beyond Sherlock has a secret sister who was never talked about before. And also his dog, it was his friend. <laughs> yeah. Let's not talk too much about things that happened in that season. So, right. Which I think is is fair. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I do sort of love that idea of like, there, there is a universe like say there's a real universe where all of this is true and this is the people writing the show are just like 
presenting their interpretation of what's going on in that universe, right? So parts of it can be wrong, but one of if two things contradict each other inside the canon, one of them has to be right. <laughs> like one of the right. things is actually happening in the real universe, so we need to figure out which one it is. And I think that really leads. Yes, you're right. This absolutely leads us into my favorite part of this conversation. So this idea of taking a kind of sprawling canon that potentially doesn't always agree with itself and doing performing work to make it all make sense together is not new to the BBC's Sherlock. It has been happening in the Sherlock Holmes fandom, which is like a very old fandom in terms of anything we've been talking about so far um since a long long time ago there is this thing like a delightful i don't know what to call it process activity you know pursuit yeah called the great game (laughs) tell me about the great game so the great game and i don't know if we'll talk about this a little bit but i think it's interesting right that Sherlock is a story about finding the clues and putting everything together and making everything make sense. sense. The fans of it like to be their own Sherlock's. Their own detectives. Um, So the definition of the greater grand game, which we've taken from the Baker Street Wiki. They would know. Yes. The practice of expanding upon the original Sherlock Holmes stories by imagining a backstory, history, or other information for Holmes and Watson. It treats Holmes and Watson as real people and uses aspects of the canonical stories combined with the history of the era of the tale's composition to construct fanciful biographies of the pair. So again, fans are going back and saying, oh, in this story, they said this about John, but in this story, they said this about John. So what's the truth about John? Yeah, and, and how can we... pieces of evidence from wherever they can find them in the canon to come up with, oh, I mean, what is basically like the fanon you know, decision, but in their minds is the truth, the truth of the matter. But the best thing about the game, and I think the most interesting thing, again, thinking about how this sort of fan activity is still perceived, right, Mm -hmm. uh, by people outside it, is what is the origin of the grand game? The origin of the grand game in one of history's most delightful ironies is a, a man who we both adore, Named Ronald yes. Knox. This man is a Catholic priest from uh, God. When was he? When was he living? It was like the early tens. It was the tens. Early tens. Let's call it that. The nineteen tens. I guess we should specify. So this is a man who. I mean, you should all know. After this, you'll be as delighted as we are. I'm sure. So he is around in England at the time of like Agatha Christie and all of the great detective writers, and I guess. Also Arthur Conan Doyle. (laughs) He has many claims to fame. He was a member of what was called like the Detectives Club or something like that, uh, which is basically like a social group for writers of detective fiction back from the glory days of detective fiction. So Agatha Christie and that whole crew had like a, you know, social club where they would meet and talk about detective fiction. And he wrote this list of 10 commandments of detective fiction that he was delightful and he gets known for in that group. He also, in in what should be, what everyone should know him for, and no one does, he was a presenter in very early days of BBC Radio, in like the second year of BBC Radio. He did a one of the earliest known radio hoaxes, where he pretended that Parliament was like under attack, and people, I mean, it was very clearly satire if you listen to it, but people all yeah. over the country were calling into the BBC because they were concerned that this was actually happening. And then a couple of years later, this ends up sort of inspiring Orson Welles's War of the Worlds. But it, relevant to this conversation, he had accidentally created the most delightful thing in the world. <laughs> so he is obviously a biblical scholar. He's a Catholic priest. He's very interested in religion. At the moment that this is happening, there was some sort of Um, new wave of biblical scholarship happening where people were reading the Bible as if it were true text, basically, and trying to come up with the, like, make all of the historical details fit in together and make sense in that way. And he thought this was kind of a ridiculous pursuit. (laughs) And in order Mm -hmm. to satirize this type of biblical scholarship, he presented a theory of Sherlock Holmes scholarship that viewed all of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes works as pieces of like historical truth and that they should be read as such and that they could all be understood 
as, uh, you know, a true series of events, if you were to read them in that way. So he is obviously, this is satire. He doesn't believe in this. He thinks it's ridiculous, but he accidentally inspires a wave of Sherlock Holmes fans who think this is a great idea. (laughs) And it becomes the great game. Right. And it's probably worth saying that he goes on to regret having started well, the, the great game. The man's too funny for his own good. He got in trouble for the for the radio hoax. People don't understand the great game is satire. I think our Arthur Conan Doyle ends up writing him a letter that's like, you know, basically, it's not that serious, bro. <laughs> and he's like, I know, I was kidding. Um, Hilarious. So this follows him for the rest of his life that he has invented this thing that now all of a sudden it becomes like a popular thing that sort of like famous intellectuals take part in. We say this uh, as a way of saying that this seems endemic to a love of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) To be a detective and and look for the clues and and make it all make sense. Um, And it's just an interesting phenomenon. Also, we just want to talk about Ronald Nutt. Our true goal in life is to, uh, you know expand ronald knox's fandom he also by the way wrote some detective novels and i've read one of them and it's pretty delightful so you know check it out people i guess getting away from the great game and if we we have to and ronald knox uh and sort of back to the modern sherlock fandom Mm -hmm. uh we do of course want to to take a look at at ao3 and in addition to the sort of dialogue of what's happening with the fans and the drama conspiracy what's happening in the fan fiction right yeah that's uh, what really matters the fan meta is a is a type of, of fan uh activity and fan work but which and the fan meta is most of what created the john law conspiracy that's yeah really a lot of what going what goes on in the fan production for this ship but that's not to say they're slacking in writing fan fiction uh to consult our ao3 um ship stats uh john Locke is the second most popular ship on ao3 they have about sixty thousands ish uh pieces of fan fiction on there and impressive it is impressive and then uh our most kudos is a piece called the internet is not just for porn <laughs> a delightful title and uh funnily enough after last time's hannibal fic bucking the trend we are back with our seemingly, uh, for most fluffy fandoms, short. yeah, another fluffy, short, accessible, fun little fic. It's less than 2,000 words. Uh, it's basically, the, the plot is, everything's the same except John is, like, from Canada. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, Sherlock is going to all these crime scenes and he's texting someone on his phone and giggling and all of the other people he's working with are wondering who he's talking to. And he says, Oh, it's my boyfriend. He lives in Canada, (laughs) which I'm sure everyone has heard as a joke before. Uh, And then it turns out he's not fake. He shows up at the end. It is cute, right? It's uh, Kelsey read this one because we're back on our, she's reading all of the fan fiction now, but yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say there's a lot to say about it. Would you? No, I mean, we'll post it. It's adorable. adorable. You can read it. It it doesn't take very long. But yeah, it's, I think at this point, right, it's just been interesting that Hannibal has been the only Hannibal's the only unique fandom so far in terms of like what the most popular fic is. Because it was not just the one most popular fic. Most of the most popular fic there is multi-chapter, tens of thousands of words, not short fic. Right. But we don't have like an instance here, right, where someone has written that uh, non-existent extra episode. That's true. That is interesting because it does feel like, I mean, it's over, but there have to be a lot of fans who are not happy that it's over and feel like the ending was not the ending that they deserved. So it is interesting that they haven't, I mean, I'm sure someone somewhere has written basically a whole other season <laughs> to give them the ending they want, but that's not what most people are thumbs up in over on the old AO3. Um, so I guess the last thing to talk about here is how do the fans and the creators interact? Obviously, we've gotten that little bits of this. Give me your sense of the of the vibe. Uh, I would say adversarial. Mm. Probably one of the more 
adversarial interactions. I well, I guess there's a couple of things, right? So as we talked about with the sort of factions with the John Luck conspiracy, you have the fans who started criticizing the authors, mm-hmm. and then you have the fans who are trying to not criticize the authors because they think that they're going to do what they want them to do. And so that's an interesting division. But clearly, a lot of fans still pushing for it to be canon. And we saw that in the Gatiss quote you read where, you know, he says it's not going to happen and they transcribe. Yeah, the crowd complains. And unlike, again, some of the other um, ships we've been talking about, this is something they are asked about a lot. The actors are asked about it. The creators are asked about it. It's sort of at the forefront of the fans' demands. Now, we have those quotes from the creators, right, where they're definitely saying it's not going to happen. We also have interesting things that start to get built into the show itself. Yes. They cannot keep themselves to just quotes outside the show. They have to express themselves within the show as well. And how do they do that? Well, I think that's interesting, too, in light of, right, the John Locke conspiracy is being fueled by clues within the show, but there are also clues that it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> Season three, episode one is a very interesting example. When I watched it, I thought it was quite aggressive towards the fans, the way that the club that is trying to figure out how Sherlock survived is portrayed does not did not strike me as being particularly positive right and it's not hard to read when the writers of the show write in fans to their episodes it's hard not to interpret that as like their opinions about their own fans right that's not the first time we've seen a show do that so the way that they write sherlock fans within the world of sherlock is dismissive at best they're you know in their little club and all their theories are just wacky and the episode I guess ends right with that guy who works at Scotland Yard whose name I can't remember and he has his wall with all his like it's like a serial killer layer (laughs) like everything's tacked on or like a beautiful mind with all the string and the red markers he's just freaking out and tearing things off the wall and I'm like what am I supposed to take from this what are the creators trying to say yeah the other thing that happens like to me, the clearest clue that the creators are not going to give you what you want uh-huh. is there's a bit of dialogue in um, season four, episode one, where John and Sherlock are talking about John's blog. And uh, I think Sherlock is complaining about the titles. And John says, give the people what they want. Hmm. And Sherlock says to him, no, never do that. People are stupid. <laughs> and to me, I feel like that's a little on the nose, guys. <laughs> I think that's the the primary clue of what's happening in this show. Yeah, I think that Moftis might think we're stupid. I don't know where I'm getting yeah. that idea. So yeah, I think that's that's to me is is really the the heart of the matter. Yeah, uh, what the creator's intent is. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they're telling you. It's not like they're keeping it a secret. So Maddie, got a couple questions for you. You do. <laughs> Better answer now. Is it queer baiting, mm. queer coding, mm-hmm. or queer canon? Mm. What an interesting question that I've never heard before. Uh, this is pretty easy for me. I'm going to go with queer baiting. Uh-huh. This is a pretty obvious case of queer baiting in my mind. I mean, we do have the, I, I guess we can call it a complicating factor of the fact that there's never been a time when they the writers have said aloud or implied anything you know queer about the characters right they're, they're not doing they're not playing the game of like it's a love story <laughs> the way that other right. people do it could be, yeah. right they're they're they say all the time they're not getting together they're not getting together so there's that but then you also have the like what they write what happens in the show and we're back again in a situation of like our our stucky episode where there's so much text there's a lot of canon. There's a lot of evidence. People are not making this up out of nowhere. It's worse than that, really, because of how much in the show they talk about, like, they, they know homo and they mention that they might be gay, but they're not gay and people think they're gay. And it's, like, constant. <laughs> Why right. are they talking about it so much if they don't want us to be thinking about it, right? Yes. So, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but what are you? what's your answer to the question? I also say queer baiting. I don't know that I have too much to add to what you just said. I think it's been relatively clear through our discussion yeah. that and we feel part of the problem is like the attitudes 
of the writers too, right? That's part of what makes it feel kind of aggressive and not, yeah, not if there is such thing, well-intentioned queer rating. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just stop bringing it up. Just stop bringing it up. Thing because I wouldn't think about it. Yeah. I mean, people might still think about it, oh, yeah. but I think fewer people would think about it. Because we talked about this, too, outside of the podcast of, like, there are a million procedurals, other shows where you have two male leads mm-hmm. who are solving crimes together, mm-hmm. and I don't think they have this kind of activity around them. Because people yeah. aren't constantly being like, you're gay, you're gay. Don't they seem gay? Yeah. Look at them now, being kind of gay. As I said when we were talking about this earlier, I can think of several cases of textbook queerbaiting examples where people in the show say that about them (laughs) and it seems to be a common attribute of especially like procedural or whatever pairings where people keep making jokes about these two characters seeming like they're in a relationship but it it doesn't happen in like if you're not doing that people can't accuse you of doing anything bad the reason you keep getting asked about this moftis is because of the way you're writing the show you can't be like, why do people keep asking about us? We've said so many times. We've been so clear. It's not going to happen. They're asking because of the show that you write. <laughs> they're watching the show right. and they're seeing what it says. And then they're like confused because what you're saying is not matching what you're writing. So our follow-up question, right, is if you gender swap the characters, would they be a couple? And like, I, I don't even know for this one. Me neither. Because it. It's just so weird what they're doing. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell what avenue they would go down, especially since they're so weird about the way that they talk about Sherlock in terms of his sexuality. Yeah. Like there are times when they're saying he's doesn't care about, you know, relationships at all. He puts it out of his head. There are times when they're like, he does care about it, but he actively avoids it. They're saying he's not asexual, but he's not this. He is that. He's not this. It like is unclear to me <laughs> where they come out yeah. really on their own characterization of Sherlock. And honestly, like part of me just feels like if, if John were a woman, Mm -hmm. if he were Joan Watson, (laughs) Oh, you don't say if anyone has seen elementary. Yeah. And the fans really wanted them to get together. Part of me is like Moftis would still be dicks and be like, no, we're not going to do it. Because of their personalities. It feels like the part of the reason, if not a majority of the reason they don't want to put these characters together is because people want them to be together. (laughs) Right. And it's our show. Yeah, it's not your show. It's our show. If you want a show where the guys get together, then write your own show. <laughs> you get a deal with the BBC. Yeah, it's really easy. Idiot. No. <laughs> um, so why isn't it canon? I think we just said. The guys who write it are weird. I mean, I don't really have a hypothesis other than, like, they're contrary. <laughs> uh, okay, so. That's that. I guess let's consult the scale. On a scale from one to five, how are we feeling about this queer baiting with five being unrepentant, malicious queer baiting and one being no idea what the fans are talking about? Uh, it's a five. It's five, baby. Five. I mean, it is not, it is a different type of five, I think, than the JK Rowling five that we gave earlier. Sure. Because hers was, if you consulted a textbook on queer baiting and the definition was <laughs> implying a gay relationship without like to attract a queer audience without ever planning to go follow through on it that is what she's doing like she is saying aloud these guys are queer so that queer fans will want to watch and also never intends apparently to get them together in canon or talk about it at all on film right (laughs) that's not what's happening here but there is just something so like (laughs) mean-spirited about the way that they treat the fans and treat the characters and write the show that I in my mind yeah elevates it to a five as well yeah it's just so mean why do they have to be so mean why you gotta be so rude (laughs) exactly exactly Moftis well that says what needs to be said I guess let me ask my question which I don't I'm not hopeful for from this conversation feeling any better about fan fiction (laughs) I mean, again, the fanfic I read was very cute. Mm-hmm. You're certainly not going to be revisiting this fanfiction, are you? Sherlock fanfiction. No. no, I don't. I don't. Again, I don't know that we've hit that sweet spot of like, I really want to well, see these two continue. There's a their, lot on their of journey. stuff ahead. We have many more things to talk about. We have not hit the end of the road for you. Right. But next week mm-hmm. is going to be a little bit of a different episode. You don't say. What are we talking about next week? We're talking about 
what we're not going to be talking about. Mm, that is intriguing. What could that mean? So, um, you know, we have sketched out this podcast. We have a certain number of episodes in mind of, of things we uh, really have different thoughts about. But we've looked at the AO3 100 most popular shows of 2020 list. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff we're just not going to be talking about. For so we want to take reasons. a little step back and and tell you all uh, what you're not going to hear on this podcast. Right. And because some of them might be things that you would expect to hear about. There are a couple I think that are kind of pretty big queer baiting ships out there in the in the universe that we're not going to talk about. So we'll explain why. But then also I'm intrigued by a chance to dive into some of the like lesser known ships that we maybe just don't know enough to talk about. (laughs) So uh, if folks want to, you know, reach out, get in touch, continue the conversation, let us know if we're right, if we're wrong, if you believe in the John Locke conspiracy, how should they reach out? If you want to join our our Ronald Knox fan club. Please join our Ronald Knox fan club. Let's start a book club of Ronald Knox books. Anybody want to join us? Yes, let us know by uh, emailing us at ltbkpod at gmail.com or tweet us or find us on Tumblr at LDP, LTBK pod. Let the boys kiss LTBK pod. Yes. Started saying some different letters in there and it was going to get confusing. Yeah. <laughs> New episodes of Let the Boys Kiss are released every other Friday at six o'clock Eastern, basically anywhere you can get podcasts. So that'll do it for us today. All right. I'll talk to y'all next time. Bye, bye, bye. Oh no, that's that, <laughs> that's in sync. It's all good. <laughs>